Welcome to the first ever episode of Scale Sales. Today, I'm honored to have the guest of Walter Lewis from Wallex, VP of Sales there. We're just going to be delving through and going into his leadership, a little bit about Wallex as a company, and also just delving into my expertise of the recruitment side of things. To start with, we'll just focus around going into sort of giving the floor to Wallex to basically just uh, give us a rundown of the company and what it's all about. So, I mean, Walter, if you just want to start with a sort of short synopsis of Wallet Group and what they're all about, basically. Sure. Thanks, Oliver. I appreciate it. So, uh, my name is Walter Lewis. I'm the SVP for the Americas for Wallet Group. And uh, we're a cybersecurity company. I've been in business for about 11 years now, and we're based in France. And so, the specific area of cybersecurity that we deal with is around privileged access management. So we make sure that the high value accounts that have access greater than a normal user, that the activity in those accounts is traceable and reportable, and hopefully attackers aren't able to compromise those accounts and compromise the environment. So it's a subset of identity and access management. There's other things that we do in the identity space as well, but our primary focus is on solving those problems for IT environments and also for OT environments. So operational technology, factory floor technology, that's one of our unique value drivers is we're one of the few privilege access management uh, software providers that focus on the OT environment as well. It's always important to have that differentiation and uh, so that's how we're going to market in the US. Yeah, definitely. And I think that leads on really nicely to actually one of my questions I had. I mean, how are you approaching? I mean, the, the cybersecurity market is highly competitive. So how do you approach a market sort of positioning yourself and, differentiate, and differentiating your sort of strategies ahead of the competition? So I think that there's many different ways that you can differentiate yourself. When you're in a space that has several existing technologies, right? You're not plowing new ground, so you're in a new space. You really have to have a different theory of the market and or a different theory that you bring to the market, I should say. So essentially looking at what the competing solutions do and really kind of putting yourself in the standpoint of the customer and saying, why would I look at these guys instead of these guys? It's very simple. You know, many times some companies, the truth isn't always pleasant, right? There's not really a great reason for them to choose. And so I think one of the most important things to do for a person in my role is to have an understanding of the market Market, and also an understanding of what the customer's priorities are, because there's obviously a lot of features to a solution. The important thing to do is to really put yourself in your customer's position and say, okay, I'm faced with this challenge as well as all these other challenges, right? So I think that's one of the things that people don't do is they don't always factor in all the other things that our priorities for our customers. So one of the most important things to do is to understand what your customers' priorities as an industry, what they are, and then position your solution so that it is able to address one of those priorities. And so in cybersecurity, I've been in this space for quite some time. And I remember talking to customers in the healthcare space in like 2013 or 2014 about compliance. And they were like, well, I know that we need to be compliant, but it's a long road. And so it wasn't really a huge priority for them. So what my goal was to increase the level of priority and make it consistent with what their main business drivers were. And in that case, for the IT people in healthcare, it was their electronic medical record systems, um, their healthcare record management systems, things like Epic. And so what we had to do to get really good market residents, residents in this previous role is to focus on how what we did enhanced what their main business driver was. 
was. So to go to market within the United States, you really have to understand things from a customer perspective. And I think too often it's easy to look at things in terms of what your solution is and what it does and say, hey, this makes sense. Why would anybody not buy this? Right. But you always have to realize that there's a hundred things our customers need to do. And as a VP of sales, one of my jobs is to make sure that we're bringing the right message to market and that it's resonating. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we always see that the same when, let's say we've got a young consultant in recruitment or whatever sales industry it is. When I'm chatting to them when they're early on, it's always about actually, look, understanding your client, the one size doesn't fit all. If you're going in and you're saying to them, okay, it's always going to be money. They're always going to have an issue with us being too expensive or whatever it be. It's actually about understanding that each client has a different issue. So in, in your case, it might be a software issue, but in ours, it might be they can't find people quick enough. But you're not going to find that out without going into the detail of asking high-level questions of actually getting down to the nitty-gritty of stuff that maybe on the face they're not showing you straight away. Right. Um, so yeah, I completely agree with that. One thing I'll add about customer focus, though, is that when you look at your addressable market through the standpoint or from the standpoint of your customer, it's important to actually talk to customers, not just the ones that are prospects for you, but, you know, people in your network is to really get their point of view and understand what's important to them. And then what that does is it shapes your narrative. So when you're talking to customers, it's a breath of fresh air because you're, or prospects, I should say, it's a breath of fresh air because you're able to speak from their point of view as much as possible. And that's one of the big complaints people have about salespeople is everybody shows up and says, hey, you got to buy this. It's awesome. My boss is going to kill me if you don't. You know, I mean, it's a me, me, me thing. And that's what you hear, you know, a lot of complaints about the industry of sales is that everybody's so focused on what they want. If you begin with looking at the market from what the customers want and you use that to frame your narrative, you're already ahead. Yeah. Definitely couldn't agree more. And I think leading on nicely, I think if we go into sort of in and around sort of your recruitment strategies, I mean, how are you approaching within your team of recruitment, talent acquisition to basically get the right team in place to actually drive that revenue growth? Well, it really depends on, I mean, I can tell you from my experience, I've had experience through this, doing this at a couple of different companies, but um, in my experience, a recruitment strategy it really depends on honestly where you're starting. If you come into an organization and there's nobody there, I think the the tendency is to to try to go a little bit too fast. So from a recruitment standpoint, and what I'll say is specific to Wallach's, when I started in the US, we had a very small presence and a lot of it was halo effect from European business that we that we'd done in the past. But what I had to do was look at what are the challenges that I'm going to be facing in the coming year or two years? And I needed to have people who had a complementary set of skills, not just for one another, but also for myself, right? So I wanted to make sure that the people that I was bringing in had a good knowledge of the product space, had a good knowledge of, you know, your basic sales acumen, almost like cooking skills, right? You can apply those same skills to multiple different types of cuisine. So I'm typically looking for people that are connected through my network, who have a presence within the industry. One of the things that I'll do as I'm having conversations with candidates, I'll start talking about specific customers in their region. So I find that salespeople have a pretty good ability to talk about things in the abstract. Most of them can talk your ear off, but you can tell fairly quickly if somebody has you know, a high degree of acumen with the customers in their market. So to kind of wrap that up, you know, my recruitment strategy at Wallex, I elected to go for, for senior positions first because we had to, we had to scale a team across a vast geographic area. And so what I was looking for people 
what I was looking for is people who had experience within the privilege access management space, had strong relationships, both with other partners, other sellers, you know, they've been in the industry for a little while and, and um, you know, we're well connected because that's a huge source of, of, of information about accounts. So, you know, I started with the, the more senior people, but if I were looking for people who were more junior doing a, you know, a more of a entry level spot, really the number one thing that I'm trying to figure out when I'm recruiting is do they have a plan and how are they going to approach this? Right. Because a good salesperson typically is after their first conversation with you about you know finding out what company it is and, you know, a general sense of the territory, they're going to put together a plan for your next interview. Right. And they're going to tell you exactly how they would do it. And so that's going to tell me a lot about the type of seller that they are, how they look at their market, how they look at activity and those sorts of things. So when I'm recruiting, I tend to go a little bit deeper. I always want to have people that have had success at other companies, but I also recognize that there are some people who can be successful no matter what they sell. You know, there's people that were born to do this, but for the rest of the world, you could be very successful at one company and not at another. So it's, you don't necessarily have to be a top five percenter at every company that you are to get hired. What you have to do is be able to, you know, rationalize and explain your experience and, and, and have a good amount of initiative focusing on the things that you're going to do to be successful, not the things that, you know, you need the company to do for you. And to me, those are, those are really the keys. So when I do recruitment, I typically will, if we use a retained firm, I spend some time talking to them about the types of people I like to hire, but I also I like to have a blend of experience on my team as well. You know, if I'm sitting around the table and everybody looks just like me, that's probably a challenge because you know we might get along great and have cocktails together, but it's it it we need to have different points of view, different types of technology that we leverage in what we do. And so I think as a leader, it's very important for me to learn things, not just from the people that are ahead of me in the business, but also the people that are still coming up because they have a lot of value to offer as well. Yeah, definitely. No, I completely agree. And I speak to a lot of VP of sales and CROs and there's a very common trend and it seems to be actually instead of hiring people that are very similar to them, it's actually looking at their mindset of what they want to achieve and how they go about it. Hmm. I know mindset is huge, especially with in sales, you can be knocked very easily. I always joke and I laugh with it from speaking to maybe an SDR or especially about junior SDR. If I'm set a task by a client to go and find the junior one, it's like, okay, when in your life have you ever had rejection or have you dealt with rejection? Because if you're doing sales and you can't cope with rejection very well, I think you're in the wrong career. Absolutely. Rejection is one thing, but you know, rejection is a, is a very acute thing. It's something that happens and it gives you a feeling at the moment. And that's something that we always deal with early in our career. But as our careers progress, every salesperson that I know at some point has had a moment where they're thinking, how do I do this? I'm on this wheel every year. And no matter how well I did last year, this year, it's like, what have you done for me lately? And it's just, it's mentally exhausting sometimes, right? And so we have to remind ourselves that we got into this because this is the best way to really capture the value that you provide at a company. Your contribution is very direct. It's easy to see, and it's a hard thing to do. And if you can master your emotions, you can master the, the challenges selling. It's probably one of the best things that you can do for a living from a compensation perspective. And so to me, you have to be honest with yourself. 
I struggled with rejection early on, but doing this in the 90s when you just had a long phone list where you were calling people and everybody was yelling cuss words at you all the time. So it wasn't, <laughs> it, it was a little different than it is today. We didn't have all the same resources. So I got a thick skin pretty quickly, but I realized that wasn't enough. You have to have the ability to get yourself through those emotional ups and downs that we're all going to go through. Definitely. And to be honest, I don't think it's changed a lot. Don't get me wrong. But I mean, I don't know if you saw one of my LinkedIn posts this week, but I mean, I got sworn out all over the place for, and it was actually, I rung the wrong number by accident, but it was a, yeah, definitely an experience. It was quite funny, but uh, normally if you're a salesperson, at least they should be slightly understanding of uh, what we're trying to do. And they're probably telling their SDRs to do exactly the same thing. Well, and you um, said you're talking to salespeople, right? And so salespeople are good because they'll generally talk to you. I mean, when I'm dealing with security people, a lot of these guys are real introverts. I remember early on, not really early on, probably about 10 years ago, I had a prospect that I called and this guy was so mad that I called him. And, and I said, hey, there's somebody at your company right now that's doing exactly what I'm doing. If you guys sell anything, if you guys have any kind of customers or anything, if you're not a government organization that gets their money from somewhere else, there's somebody at your company, your job exists because somebody's doing this. And when you remember that, it makes it easier to deal with. Definitely. And I think for any young person that's jumping on the phone, it's actually, it is quite the daunting task. And that's all you think that people are going to think negatively of you. But going back to what we were saying before, if you can find out what an actual issue is for them and you can resolve that issue, a call can turn very quickly. There's been plenty of ones right. where I've basically been told to F off at the beginning of the call, where I've ended up being one of my best clients maybe a couple of weeks down the line when, when that was actually a need for what I was trying to sell them. So it definitely does work that way. And anyone who's like a young salesperson watching this, don't be afraid to pick up the phone just to dial away, have a bit of fun with it, enjoy it. And like, even when they do get angry at you, it's a, it's part of the job and it can be quite funny as well like i experienced last week rejection's yeah. better than not being than being ignored um you know honestly yep. to me i ask myself every day am i being effective are these things that i'm doing effective is there anything i could do to be more effective i mean being effective is very important and if you're getting rejected you're being effective right because you're out there you're establishing content and before we move on to another topic, the one thing that I'll say is that we're not having a social conversation. We're having a business conversation. So if I meet somebody socially and I say hello to them or make, I make plans with them and they ghost me, that's one feeling. But professionally, it's not the same thing. We're not having a, a personal conversation. We're having a business conversation. So it's not a one-to-one -one thing. Sometimes you have to reach out to somebody in 10 times, 15 times before you're going to hit that right moment where they're receptive. And so you can't view it as a social situation where, oh, I called this guy and he didn't call me back. They're never going to call you back. You've got to keep following up. And then the, the one time that they're receptive to what you have to say, it'll just click. And that's how it is. Yeah, definitely. Completely agree. But yeah, I mean, definitely as I speak to well, young junior leaders, I mean, personally myself, 25, managing a team, one of the hardest things that we find or is generally the, the retainment staff. So how can we keep the staff engaged with what I'm saying, listening to what I'm saying, but also just keep on developing them into high-performing, high-revenue-driving people? I mean, is there anything you've picked up along the way that's allowed you to really retain your staff? To retain my staff? Is that yeah, what you said? so yeah, retaining them. So rather well, than moving on and keep developing them. 
I think the thing that you have to do as a sales leader is you have to really understand the people on your team very well. You have to understand what motivates them. I mean, typically one of the first two questions I ask in an interview is what led you to sales, right? Because that story is going to give you their why. And when you understand what a person's why is, and you can develop some trust, what you have to be able to do as a leader is show them how you can help get them from here to here. And it takes a lot because people can be very defensive. Everybody wants to act like they know how to do everything. I mean, I say things to my kids sometimes They're like, yeah, I know. And I'm like, well, if you knew, <laughs> you know, but it's uh, it's one of those things where you have to have that trust because there's a good leader is going to have a great deal of intimacy with the people on their team. They're going to understand their lives. They're going to understand what motivates them. They're going to understand the things that they do well and understand the things where they might have some challenges. And really what your goal is, is to foster the things that they're doing well while trying to smooth out the things that perhaps they don't do very well. And to do that, you have to have credibility and you have to have trust. And so, you know, for me, I like to focus on the person and what that person needs as opposed to having a blanket strategy for everybody. I see being a good salesperson or a good sales leader a lot like being a, a professional athlete or a coach, right? There's certain skills that you're going to develop that are going to be transferable no matter where you're going. But when you have the right coach that puts you in the right spot and gives you the right training and those sorts of things, it's going to really gel and you're going to do a lot better. And what I've found is that good salespeople tend to gravitate toward good leaders and they tend to run from bad leaders. Yeah, definitely. No, I completely agree. The amount of phone calls I have per week of maybe there's a potentially they, they've joined a company because of being with a VP of sales and they really love the way he works. And then suddenly there's a reshuffle and someone's coming that's new and straight away they're like, no, we're just not gelling or they just don't feel that they're a good leader to them. I think one thing that, that I get a lot as a recruiter is a lot of account executives or people asking, look, Holly, how am I going to be going from an AE to a, to a leadership role? I mean, for yourself, I mean, how do you identify from your team who are your next leaders working their way through the ranks? That's a fantastic question. I think that what you've hit on is really one of the essence. It's really the essence of what makes a good leader. What I said before about the trust, that actually, obviously, that, that, that has to be there. But if you look at a person's career and the mental state that they're in at various stages of their career, when we start out, we're just, oh my gosh, what are we, we're overwhelmed. And then once you develop a little bit of mastery, then you start looking around and going, man, these people are idiots. <laughs> And you develop a little bit of outrage in about the middle part of your career because you feel like you're working hard and why aren't these other people and things like that. But you don't really reach the top level until you recognize that everybody is going to be the way that they are. And you don't have to have everybody doing everything perfectly to be successful. What you have to do is understand who does what well. And so when I'm trying to figure out who the people are that have a goal for leadership, because not everybody does. I mean, there's some AEs that make plenty of money. They have good work-life balance. They don't really have to worry about anybody else and they're happy, right? Yeah. But what it is for me is when I'm having strategic conversations with a seller, regardless of what level they are, if they're focused on the, the opportunity, that is a first or second level person, right? They're very focused on the one thing. When they think about the market as a whole and they're able to talk about things like trends and why customers are doing things, you know, it's not just, hey, say this to this guy. It's 
why would I say this? So they really get behind the why. But the main thing that I also look for is a type of selflessness. So when I'm trying to identify a leader, I really get a lot of cues. A lot of the cues are based on your own read of people, but it's also from their peers, the people that they're working with. I want to know, you know, is Oliver helping people or is he just doing great himself? Is he a guy that people want to call when they have a challenge? Maybe they don't want to come to their boss right away. They want to bounce something off of another colleague. How encouraging are they? Because a lot of people think that leadership is really the only way to move forward in your career. You know, it's like you see that with engineering. Well, I'm a great engineer. Now I have to be a manager, right? That's the only way to move forward in your career. But that's actually not true. I've done leadership roles. And um, after a period of time, it can become a little bit exhausting. So I did some things where I didn't have to focus as much on others. And I honestly couldn't stand it. Because to me, it's not hard for me to sell products. What I really enjoy, what really gets me up in the morning is trying to build a team of people that are going to be successful. That's what really gets me excited. So I definitely look at how the team interacts with one another. The other thing is leaders also have to be able to reach into the organization to get things done because, you know, most org charts are a pyramid like this, but in my opinion, it should be inverted because a leader's job is to make sure that everybody on that pyramid has the fair compensation, equal opportunity to be able to be successful. The territories are well balanced. There's nobody that's getting favoritism. You know, those are all the types of things a good leader has to do. And uh, I think fundamentally, it's something that you're called to or you're not. So I'm typically looking for the people that go above and beyond that are working closely with the other members of the team. And it's it's not always the person that's getting the most deals. Sometimes it's somebody who's, they're doing this right now, but boy, they would be great if you moved them into a leadership role and were able to replicate what they're doing. So that's kind of how I look at it. Yeah, definitely. No, I, I agree with that last point completely that when sometimes I've, I've well, from my previous company, there were some people that maybe weren't the, the highest of billers. Maybe they just weren't the greatest recruiters, but they very early on in their careers were already picking people up and bringing themselves in as, as a mentor to them, just to guide them and help them. They're the people that will, should be going into leadership rather than your sort of selfless individual contributor that is just solely focused on themselves. You see it all the time. I remember last company that I worked at, the, the best biller of the company probably wasn't the best manager oh yeah just because you focused on their on their one task yeah you have to the amount of time that i'm learning that now that i love doing deals and i love doing business but you actually have to actually take a slight hit on your own business to put your time and energy into developing someone else yes in the long run it will benefit you but that is a massive learning curve for any junior leader completely. I think it's the hardest thing that I'm transitioning through at the moment. Yeah. And I'm quite honest about it with my team as well, that look, if I am being a bit, well, too self-indulged, I need to remember actually, no, I need to give you time and focus because I will happily just turn my phone over. No one can get hold of me. And then I'm like, actually, no, that's not the right thing to be doing. Um, yeah. It's tough. I mean, if you feel yourself thinking that I wish everybody would just do their job and leave me alone, that's not a thing a leader thinks. I have a few little hacks that I've picked up over the years. And we talked about earlier about mindset. In sales, you're gonna wake up some mornings and you're not gonna know whether you're the boxer or the bag. I mean, it's really tough. And what you have to do is you have to have techniques to manually, actively get yourself out of the state of mind that you're in because you can't sell when you feel like that. And I think that my personal technique that I use is 
I'll reach out to people, you know, maybe they are members of my team, maybe they're a former colleague or something like that. And I will try to figure out a favor that I can do for those people. Is there somebody that I can connect them with? Is, is there something that I can do? Um, it, it's a lot like jumpstarting your car, right? You're taking the energy um, that they have and you're, you're applying it back into your day and you're giving them some benefit. So some weeks I'll spend some time just doing things for other people that I know in the industry. And that stuff will always come back uh, to benefit you. But it's a really good way to get out of your own out of your own head and focus on the things that you do well so that your mind can come back and you can be in the right state of mind to do what you need to do. Yeah, definitely. I think actually leading on like where we should sort of delve into now is actually a little bit about like your journey itself. And I noticed what a lot of the listeners will want to hear about is like actually like how you got into leadership. And I suppose if you could sort of focus in and around to start with, sort of just a general synopsis of how you got into leadership and then maybe anything that along the journey that sort of shaped the way that you are a leader now? <laughs> That's a big question, but an abbreviated version of it. So I worked on the, you know, my background, I got a undergraduate degree in history and then a master's in business when I realized all I could do is think about deep thoughts about unemployment. So I knew I had to do something. So I got into business and uh, I got into technology in, you know, in the late nineties. And I learned very quickly that you have to have credibility with the technical people and you really want to have an understanding of where the customer is coming from. So I felt that rather than to get into the eventual goal was to get into a position that had some high value where I could earn a good income. But I knew that there was some bottom line type of activities that I had to understand first. So I went through an operational track. I worked on delivery leadership and consulting. The first really big leadership role I had was managing a large consulting organization nationwide, both from a sales and delivery perspective. It was very valuable experience because it made me less afraid to talk to customers because I think if you spend your whole professional life on the outside trying to extract value from people on the inside, but you don't know what's happening within the business, it's a lot like trying to describe a sport to somebody who's never seen it. You could say all the right things, but there's just a little bit of something missing. So went on the consulting side. And then um, I told my company after having you know some pretty successful years, hey, I wanted to change to a, a sales compensation plan. And they said, okay, well, we can do that. And so they gave me a million dollar quota. And I did a lot more than a million dollars that year. And then the next year they capped me and I moved on. But that was really what launched me into sales. I had done some earlier in my career, but spending some time on the other side and really getting an understanding of things from a customer perspective was a very important thing for me. Information security, the consulting work we were doing was in the information security space. And so I did have a certain degree of subject matter expertise. And I won't say that's 100% necessary, but it's definitely helpful because you can pick up new technologies and new things in a much quicker way. But I would typically look at organizations that were a little bit smaller. And the reason I did that is because you can make a much bigger impact when you're working with a company that's at a, a hyper growth stage and their comp plans are also the best most of the time. And so I felt really comfortable when I was in those roles because I understood where the customer's business was. I moved fairly quickly, though. I knew that I wanted to be uh, in a leadership role. And so I did a lot of those things that I was describing, you know, I was the guy who was always there helping on deals and, you know, doing that sort of thing and building a strong network. And the regional leadership positions, I did a couple of leadership positions on a, on a regional level for the Western United States. And then when I had the opportunity to, to have a national role, I felt like I had mastered all the perspectives. 
all the way up and down. And, and that's really the key is, is you have to understand the different perspective that you have to have at each role, right? Early on, it's all about output, work, work, work. It's about showing that you that you have what it takes to be persistent and to get through. But then as you proceed, a lot of it is understanding where to apply that. So I felt that I was able to do that very effectively and, and figure out where the, you know, where the right opportunities were from a company perspective. So in coming to Wallex, I knew that eventually I want to have a CRO role. And I knew that I needed to get some, some experience at a national level, because the thing that's really different is when you're a first level manager, you're basically taking what you knew as an individual contributor and trying to replicate that to other members of the team. But you have to relate to other managers and perhaps to a director or VP above you. As a director, you really need to judge the management acumen of the individual sales managers that you that you have on your team and their teams and how they're looking at their business. So it's a different perspective. A lot of the things that you'll pick up in that in the first and second level, level leadership are the forecasting things, the stuff that you you have to be able to do to really speak with executive leadership, but when you move up from a director level to a VP, see, now we're starting to talk about things like the unit economics of a sale. And so you can't have the same conversation for a VP role that you would for a, a more junior role because the conversations are different. You're talking about things like addressable market, budget, the unit economics of specific roles, how fast to grow. And you don't learn any of that stuff in sales. I mean, you don't learn any of that stuff. So the only way that you can really ready yourself for the more senior roles is to do it on your own. I mean, companies are going to, they're going to train you in their product or their methodology or those sorts of things. But being a voracious reader, looking at, you know, the theory of, you know, how people are selling now, how people are marketing, how they're buying. So understanding the trends in your space and also spending time with people that are more senior that could help and advise you on your point of view. Because, I mean, I could tell you somebody puts together a marketing plan uh, or, a, you know, sales marketing, a go-to-market plan for an area. I can pretty much tell you what level they're at because of the things that they focus on. And so understanding that there's things that you have to pick up at each of those levels. So for me, it was understanding customer perspective understanding the business cycles and the sales cycles. I gave a, a former colleague of mine some advice before he took a role. And I said, look, you are a good seller, but what you need is some transaction volume. And you need to do that because you need to have dealt with a hundred different procurement people, right? You don't need a 10 deal a year job. You need a hundred deal a year job for a while, because what you have to do is get a, a large amount of exposure to the way different companies do things. And that's, what's going to give you that level of experience. So he did that, you know, he's, he's at a, a more senior role. So knowing what it's going to take to get you to that next level is absolutely fundamental. And there's some organizations out there that people can join now that can help coach you through some of that. But for me, it was really just a process of reading and learning and, um, you know, finding the right people to advise me. And I still, you know, there's probably five or six people that I still call anytime I'm making decisions, major decisions like that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's so important to have mentors in whatever you're doing, whether you're individual contributor or you're a sales leader. Yeah. If you haven't got someone who's supporting you, mentoring you, generally you're going to find yourself overwhelmed or, or swamped with any task that's given towards you. Absolutely. I'm very fortunate that I have quite a few family friends that I reach out to one of which was a managing director of a very large recruitment agency. Whenever I'm faced with an issue, which happens more regularly than not, <laughs> the, uh, he's quite happy a, a phone call away just to ask these questions and just to be able to sort of guide me in the right direction that I need to be going. Yeah. Especially in sales, having a slight wobble 
does happen, no matter what level you're at. Of, there can be concerns or just the pressure of your team sending you 100 emails a day asking you normally a bunch of rubbish to be perfectly mm-hmm. honest, but but it's, it's part of it and just having someone who can just send to you again and get you back on the track is so important and i, I think that that's all goes on to i mean obviously you're talking about having problems but like i mean is there a specific challenge you face going maybe going into leadership or while you've been a leader that, that you then sort Leadership is all challenges. It's all challenges. There's very little time when things are chugging along, right? Everything is just going perfectly. The you know the watch mechanism, everything is working perfectly, right? That doesn't it doesn't happen very often. There's always um, there's always something that um, that you're having to uh, to rein in. But I would say for me, one of the most difficult things has been you can know what the right strategy is, but to be able to put that in perspective and explain it to somebody who, who perhaps sees it differently, that's, that's a challenge. I think one of the other things that's, that's challenging is being able to accept someone else's point of view and understanding that you don't necessarily know everything. You could be an expert in what you're doing, but if you have to, for example, I used unit economics earlier, the term, if you have to understand what your growth rate should be or what to do with what you have, that's a real challenge, right? Because if you know exactly how to do it with everything that you want, right? I need to have 10 sellers and this and this, and and this is what I need to be successful. Okay, great. Well, what do you do when you don't have that? That's the, the real big challenge in leadership because there's some people, they only know how to do things one way. And so um, knowing how to get the best out of your supporting elements, whether it be channel or marketing, knowing how to leverage your own leadership. Those those things are all really important. But for me, really, it's taking, I'm dealing with the US market and I deal with, you know, my, my organization is based in France and they have the things that work really well over there. And so, you know, I can't come in and say, oh, well, that's not going to work over here, right? I have to, I have to be able to adjust to those nuances and um, where I see a lot of leaders running into um, into problems is when they just they're too bullheaded about their own approach and they don't recognize that, you know, this is not something that you're doing by yourself and you have to um, you have to weigh in and you have to be confident in the things that you say, but you also have to be willing um, to make adjustments based on you know the, the opinions of others. And I think that's one of the hardest things. Um, you know, at most of the levels up till now, I've been able to say, ah, man, you know, marketing is not doing this and, or, um, we need more SDRs or whatever it is, but I don't have the luxury to do that anymore. Right. What I have to do now is I have to say, okay, well, this is what we have. How do we make those things more effective? And um, I think that's, you know, that's been a challenge for me. I imagine it will continue to be as long as I'm doing this. So definitely. And uh, I think it's so prevalent at the moment, and especially with the way that markets are definitely changing compared to last year. You've got all this AI software coming in and changing the way that everybody works. And it definitely will be seen which companies are adapting to change and which aren't. And it will, especially in sales teams, that it will become necessary for us to adopt different bits of technology to enhancers because if other people are getting a lot higher output than the rest of us something has to change and i mean i, I can only talk really from a recruitment standpoint but i we can already see it in the recruitment world where some companies aren't adopting it and their billings are drastically going down or plateauing extremely and they're not pushing forward because there's other agencies beating them to the work that they should be winning absolutely yeah, yeah super important and then i think one of my favorite topics 
to that to delve into is actually one that I'm actually awful at is actually so any advice you have for any sales leaders basically out there sort of manage being a top leader how do you sort of maintain a work-life balance yeah well I think that the one of the most important things to remember is that the feelings that you have they don't ever go away I, I deal with this sometimes with my son he's 10 years old and he gets frustrated by some things and what I always try to tell him is you're always going to be frustrated by those things what you have to be able to do is compartmentalize. You have to basically realize um, that's just the state of things. So from a work-life balance perspective, I think that you have to understand that there are seasons in life. And there are times when your personal life, your home life, your family, those sorts of things are going to require more of your attention. Accepting that is is one of those things the feelings that you have the the frustration the uh lack of certainty all those things that's what i was saying you know uh those are never going to go away and so what you have to be able to do is recognize this is what i have control over and this is what i don't have control over so i think from a work-life balance perspective for example i'm going to be going on vacation at the end of next week and I'm quite stressed about it because there's a lot of things that I have going. There's some changes that we're making to the way we're going to market. And there's few times in a year where I'm thinking, okay, this is great. It'd be a good time to take a vacation. But that's not when vacations happen. What you have to remind yourself is that the temptation that we have as professionals, as men, this is one of the things that I've dealt with, is you're out there, you're the person, you see yourself as an achiever, you see yourself as a person who gets results, but you have to recognize that that's not all you are. So I think being realistic about what you can accomplish in a given week or what your expectations should be, because many times our expectations are really far out of line with reality. And we find ourselves getting disappointed. So um, not just looking at the results, but looking at the incremental successes and uh, I know this is kind of a roundabout way of going here, but what makes us not have work-life balance or balance in our lives or feeling effective is um, when we feel like we're pulled into one direction or we're pulled into another. And so recognizing that those forces are always going to be pulling you, you know, family is always going to have needs, work is always going to have needs, understanding the things that you can control, and then understanding where the best place is to apply your effort at a given time. For example, when you're at home with your family is not a good time to be thinking about deals, right? It's not a good time to be thinking about things. And you definitely don't want to talk to your family like you would um, to your colleagues, you know? So understanding which hat you're wearing at which time is really important. But I would also say the key to having balance is feeling effective in both, in, in, you know, in, in all the areas. And I think the key to feeling effective is understanding what you can control, knowing that you that you have a good plan and that it takes time to get things, you know, get things to work. But then also recognizing that sometimes you're going to have to throw that stuff out of balance a little bit. And, you know, and you have to set that expectation at home. You have to set that expectation to other areas in your life that, hey, I really need to buckle down here for a little while. And I can actually think back to several periods in my life where I had a very concerted amount of effort over a weekend or over a, you know, like a, a break after a holiday or something like that, where I took two or three days really selfishly and got myself reorganized and learned a new skill or read several books or did something. And then what ends up happening is that develops a little bit of um, a little bit of intellectual capital, right? You feel that you're, you've accomplished something today. And 
that lets you let it go. Okay. I made a good effort today. I worked on all the things that I could. Now I can stop and do this. The key is when you're, when you're not doing well, and there's always going to be times when, you know, things aren't going your way is to not lose that balance because it's really, it's really easy to get out of balance, right? It's really easy for you to think, okay, that's great when everything is going well, but what, what happens when it's not going well? And I think a lot of people are dealing with those types of things right now. You have to refocus, again, understanding the things that you can control. And uh, you also have to leave some things at home or or leave some things at work too. One of the challenges with with leadership that I found, I actually reached out to somebody in my network for taking this particular role. And uh, I wanted to talk to him. You know, he had gone from being a VP to a CRO. And I said, well, what's it feel like in the top job? And he didn't even hesitate. He said, lonely. And I said, what do you mean? And he says, well, you can't really complain to the people below you. Nobody wants to hear it from you above you. And you don't want to talk to your wife about it necessarily. So it's, it can be kind of lonely. And I could definitely see that. And the, the way that you handle that is by having a network of people, first of all. Second of all, knowing what you can control. And, uh, and then just finding those little things that keep you motivated. That's what's going to make your, your time effective. Because usually if there's a lack of balance, it's because you feel like one area, you know, maybe your professional area is, is really lagging and you want to bring it up. But you can't manage like that. You can't be running from one side of the boat to the other. It just doesn't, it doesn't work. You have to be the same person with the same techniques across your whole life managing your time, managing your effort and all those sorts of things. So, you know, I, I know that that's not an easy answer. Um, there's not really a hack to work-life balance, but one other way that that is actually a hack um, is I like to color code my calendar. And it's a little bit of a pain when you first do it um, because you have to come up with categories and do those sorts of things. But what what I believe is that you take in information in different ways. I can look at a report that shows me the numbers or I can look at a chart, but I wanted to have something, I can go through my calendar in detail and see what I'm spending time on. And I can have an Excel spreadsheet that tells me that, or I can flip back through my calendar and notice which colors I'm seeing not come up enough. And so a hack to making sure that you're spending enough time with everything is doing some color coding on your calendar and saying, I'm doing a lot more of this than I am of this. And if ever I'm having a bad time and I look back about three months, there's some, there's some imbalance in that calendar. Right. And so it's having little spot checks, little things that you can keep yourself honest. And uh, I know it seems like a really trivial thing, but most of the people that I've told about that, and then they actually see it in practice, that that's a great hack. So it's one of the things. Definitely is. Is It's something that I've I've half done my calendar at the moment, definitely for like priorities and also just even, I, I mean, I, I did a management course while I was at my last employer and a lot of what we focused on was time blocking and actually yeah. blocking out your diary, making sure you had time for yourself. Because one thing that I learned from the last eight weeks from working from home was that I wasn't taking my full lunch break or I wasn't taking the breaks I needed to, no. which then if I, if, I done, if I had a calendar like yours, I probably would have looked back and gone, ah, I see what the issue is. I'm just working straight through 12 hours a day and not actually taking any time for Ollie or just getting out to go and walk, which people forget. They think, oh, if you work more hours, you're going to end up getting more output from it. But actually sometimes if, for, we always laughed and joked, if someone was, they were going for runs regularly, taking a bit of break, but also working hard in the time they would, they're generally more productive and they're getting more done and they ended up doing more, they were doing better. I couldn't but agree with you more. And the one thing that I'll also say is that um, sometimes you need time 
with your problems. I used to think um, there would be certain decisions that I had on my plate that I was reluctant to make. And usually I'm very decisive, right? I, I get something done, no, no problem. But there'd be something, and it's like an innocuous thing. And I'm like, why am I putting that off? Right. If there's just some reason it's not unpleasant. Why am I putting it off? Sometimes you have to sit with the decision for a little bit of time. And sometimes you can't come up with it's like trying to figure out what you're going to eat tomorrow while you're cooking a dinner today. Right. It's just it, it's not the right uh, it, yeah. you're not in the right state of mind. So go for a run, go for a bike ride, um, you know, do something. But solitary, you know, something where you could just be, you know, alone with your thoughts, if you will. That's usually when answers come to me. That's usually when ideas come to me or that's usually when, you know, I'll hear that voice in my head that says, you know, maybe you're not looking at this the right way. Maybe you need to look at it from this point of view. It doesn't ever happen when you're task focused. So you have to give your brain, your brain, your mind, your experience, all those things time to process because we don't know how all that subconscious stuff is working and how it's organized. Right. So recognizing the fact that you're not always going to be able to come up with the right answer, taking a step back and then doing something either relaxing or something that's completely different, that's when you're going to get your thoughts. The key is making sure you capture them when you're doing that, you know, bring a notebook when you go for a run. <laughs> yeah, so my, my, mine's actually awful because where, where I do most of my thinking is actually in the shower. So <laughs> it, it, people always ask me, they're always like, Ollie, you, you always have such long showers. I'm like, but as soon as I get in the shower, I'm by myself. I have a, I've, normally I plan my whole day in the shower. Yeah. But I, mean, I wish I could have a notepad. I probably should get one of those little waterproof ones to put on the wall or something. But generally, it's a weird place. But it's a, it's a great time alone when there's no one else around. But yeah, it's a, I, I completely agree. You do have to have that moment alone, whether it's going for a walk, having a shower or whatever it be. Yeah. Um, it's so important. You have, to know when you, you have to know when you do your best thinking, you know, and uh, I take some time in the evening, you know, when everybody else is in bed, I organize my stuff for the next day. Um, but, you know, I try to take um, um, and there's times when I've been out of balance with this and I haven't gotten a lot of exercise and those sorts of things. But I think that um, most of the people that I know that are successful, they see that as just part of their daily hygiene. And that's usually when they have most of their good ideas. You know, and so um, understanding that you can't you can't force it, you know, you you can't turning that thing harder isn't going to make any isn't going to make any difference. Sometimes you just have to let go and you get a whole different approach. So, yeah. you know, I, I know that that sounds a lot of the things, you know, that I've said, I don't think anything's particularly, you know, mind blowing, but a lot of them are very are very basic. And, and what I've found is that doing things well is not is not complicated. It, you just, it requires discipline and it requires an understanding of how you think and how you approach problems. I'll give you an example. I was sitting in a room and we were making adjustments with the whole executive team. We were making adjustments to an addressable market file. And there's like 10 people sitting in this room and we're projecting and I'm at my computer trying to make some adjustments on the fly and I couldn't do it. My brain wasn't working. There was there was too much other stimulus going on. There were too many variables that people were talking about. And I recognized this is not the time for me to do this. I can't produce a good result. And so what I had to do is basically be vulnerable and say, hey, I am not able to put my, my best focus into this right now. Give me some time to sit with it and I'll come back. And I, it wasn't pushing anybody off. It was basically just realizing that I was going to attach really negative feelings to this if I kept trying to do it you know, banging my head against the wall with all this, all these distractions, it just wasn't going to work, but you have to be vulnerable enough to do that. And I think it takes, it, it takes some time and some confidence before you can, 
because I knew nobody was going to think that I was a you know moron. I didn't know how to work Excel. It wasn't about that. It was it was about the fact that I just couldn't do it at the time. And um, recently, it's probably one of the first times that I would have been comfortable doing that in an executive meeting where I'm actually saying, "Hey, I can't do this under these circumstances." You know, in the past, I would have always tried to push through, but um, you know, it shows growth, I suppose. Yeah, no, definitely, and I completely agree. Well, look, I think that we've answered everything that is definitely going to be insightful for all of the leaders. I've definitely taken up enough of your time, and I really appreciate that, Walter. Um, but yeah, thanks so much for your time, and I'm sure the listeners will really enjoy this, uh, especially as it's the first episode. So uh, I'm, I'm sure it will be. I'm sure it'll be a good one for them. I appreciate the opportunity, and like I said earlier, you know, when um, when we're thinking about what we do. Um, having these types of conversations, actually spending some time uh, discussing it, um, you know, helping somebody else build something for their brand, you know, those sorts of things. Um, it's it's very useful and uh, I appreciate the opportunity to do it. Thanks so much for the water. Much appreciated. Thank you. All right.